Good morning, everybody. This is Corey Worden, and you're listening to the AOHP Caring for Healthcare Professionals podcast. Got a great episode today. We're going to be talking with Dave Johnson, who is a veteran safety professional and editor of the ISHN, or Industrial Safety and Health News magazine. So Dave's got a great amount of experience, and he's going to be talking about 50 years of evolution from OSHA and all different types of safety issues over the years. So with that, we'll go ahead and get right into it. Great, great, thank you. Excellent, we sure appreciate it. All right, well, Dave, if you would, um, just so I don't, I don't speak for you, if you want to give our listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, what you're doing these days, where you come from, where you're going, all that good stuff, we, we appreciate okay. it. Uh, for the past year, Corey, um, I retired from uh, Industrial Safety and Hygiene News, ISHN Magazine, after a 40-year tenure as chief editor, Corey, um, and started up a freelance business called Dave Johnson's uh, Writing Shop. And most of my uh, projects, most of my clients have been um, people that I knew all the years that I was working on ISHN. Uh, so I'm working for... Um, several consulting firms, um, editing a couple of safety uh, books, um, one of them written by a um, a longtime columnist for ISHN, uh, writing some blogs, doing, I guess you could say, the the usual um, freelance uh, kind of work. And at the same time, I... um, I, I'm still working with ISHN as consultant at large is my official title. And uh, we have a podcast series on ISHN called Dave Johnson's Wide World of Safety. And I also help ISHN out with um, their webinars, uh, write some articles for them, um, just do some strategic consulting work with the magazine. The magazine world is very different, Corey, than uh, it was uh, even 10 years ago, let alone when I started out. And um, I'll be going with ISHN staff to um, the meetings this fall, the ASSP meeting in Austin and the uh, National Safety Congress meeting a month later in Orlando. So that's where I'm at right now. Um, and that's what I've been doing for about the last year or so. Now, would you like oh, me? To, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Now, I was going to say, uh, would you like me to to take you back over um, what I've seen over the course of uh, working for ISN for for about 40 years? It's been sure. an interesting journey, Corey. Yeah, if you want to get into the Get into your history. That'd be good. Okay. Um, started out uh, back the year Ronald Reagan was elected president, 1980. And um, <laughs> for those few you may recall, uh, when President Reagan came aboard, when President Reagan was campaigning for the office against Jimmy Carter, one of his platforms was deregulation. Um, he called it um, trimming back the regulatory thicket. And he used OSHA, probably not surprisingly. Uh, it's a pretty famous or uh, infamous, depending on how you look at it, 
regulatory agency that has, um, especially if you go back to 1980, it was only 10 years old at that point, um, having been created by President Nixon in 1970. And so it was still kind of in its, uh, in its youth and its very early years. And uh, in the first 10 years, OSHA, not surprisingly, had issued a number of uh, regulations, new standards um, that businesses found uh, hard to understand, hard to comply with, costly, burdensome. And this was the reason um, that uh, President Reagan, when he uh, when he uh, won the election and um, was inaugurated in uh, January of '81, um, there was uh, he started talking about what we can do to um, trim the sales of uh, regulators like EPA and OSHA. And he was joined by some Republican um, senators who had uh, specific OSHA reform uh, legislation that they wanted to uh, introduce and hopefully pass. Uh, there was some OSHA reform legislation that would have um, kind of restricted the agency in its standard setting and enforcement, but that legislation was not passed. But to give you an idea of the climate of the times back in the early 80s, Corey, I remember doing going down to Washington and doing an interview for an article with the um, president of a lobbying group called Stop OSHA. And that was kind of business's attitude back in 1980. Um, they were not happy um, with this relatively new um, safety regulatory agency and they wanted as much as possible to stop it. Um, didn't succeed, of course. OSHA is now 50 years old. It's been interesting uh, to see uh, kind of the, uh, the path that OSHA has taken, the evolution, if you want to call it that, that OSHA has taken over 50 years. But that's only part of the, the story that uh, kept me interested in safety and health, Corey, um, for decades. You know, us reporters and journalists don't have the reputation of being nomads. And we, um, we move around from job to job, from newspaper to newspaper, from magazine from, to magazine or radio station, television stations, whatever. Um, we're not known for staying one place too long. Um, move around. Um, to different beats or different specialties that we report on. Um, and we do it with different publications or, like I said, different media outlets. But uh, safety stuck with me. And one of the reasons was when I look back, Corey, um, there's just a number of interesting developments um, starting in the 80s and really continuing to this day putting aside OSHA and um, the changes that uh, OSHA has been through and the standards OSHA has issued and the different people that OSHA, that have run OSHA since 1980. I was thinking about things like um, the Bhopal disaster tragedy that occurred in the mid-1980s 
in the late 1980s, um, there was a lot of attention given to asbestos and asbestos risk, especially in schools, in public buildings, and asbestos removal um, became uh, a big business, actually. Um, and both EPA and OSHA had regulations governing uh, asbestos exposures and how to remove asbestos. EPA covered asbestos in public buildings and schools, and OSHA, of course, covered asbestos exposures uh, in the workplace. Um, but that was, uh, that was something that ISHN Magazine um, had cover stories on. We did quite a few articles on asbestos risk in the late 1980s. And then one of the things, one of the outgrowths of uh, uh, the asbestos exposure story was really the, it really powered the growth of industrial hygiene. Industrial hygiene uh, was a pretty small um, community of professionals. Um, it was it, it go, it, its history goes way back to the to the 1940s and 1930s, but it was a small uh, group of professionals until um, the asbestos removal work was being done in schools across the country and also in offices and in, in public buildings, libraries, uh, government offices, and also in workplaces. There was just a lot of concern about uh, legacy asbestos, especially used as uh, insulation material in these buildings. And when you removed it, you needed to have someone monitoring the exposure levels of asbestos to make sure that it wasn't a danger to the workers removing it. And it was the industrial hygienists um, who had the expertise to do this kind of monitoring. And so in the late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, industrial hygiene as a profession uh, got very high and very popular and grew in numbers um, from the little community that it was to something uh, quite a bit larger. I think at one time, the Association of Industrial Hygienists probably had 10 or 15,000 members. So at that point, the magazine and I uh, were doing a lot of reporting on industrial hygiene, on different kinds of chemical exposures. And um, in the early 1990s, this is um, uh, when the right to know movement um, really caught fire. And at first, individual states each were passing uh, their own right to know laws, um, kind of requiring businesses to tell workers about the toxic substances and health hazards, uh, specifically different kinds of toxic chemicals that they were working with in the workplace, right to know. Employees had a right to know the dangerous stuff they were working with. Well, business, uh, bus the business community um, got a headache trying to comply with uh, this patchwork quilt of uh, asbestos laws across the country that varied state by state. And so um, business lobbying groups like the Chemical Manufacturers Association back in the 90s actually lobbied um, 
Washington for OSHA to create a national right to know law. So businesses would just have one national law to comply with in, uh, uh, instead of uh, dealing with 30 or more state laws. And so in the early 1990s, OSHA issued uh, the famous one of its biggest standards, the hazard communication standard. Um, and then for the first couple of years, there was an awful lot of compliance work that had to be done around hazard communication, uh, at that time known as material safety data sheets and training employees on on working with dangerous chemicals. So I did a lot of reporting and ISHN Magazine did a lot of reporting on hazardous chemicals and the hazard communication standard. Um, as the 90s went on, um, another interesting development occurred outside really of any safety and health issue. It had to do with um, economics. And some of uh, your listeners may recall in the late 90, 1990s, I'm sure some of them had their careers going then. And um, the economy in general, business in general, entered a period of uh, big downsizing, especially with the major corporations. Uh, Jack Welch, at, uh, who was the famous CEO of General Electric, was known as Neutron Jack because uh, of the way that he went about downsizing different divisions of GE. Um, big layoffs, not only at GE, but um, in many, uh, many large corporations. Um, and this was the, one of the reasons that uh, these really, in some cases, massive layoffs tens of thousands of people. And this was the cover story of uh, a lot of business magazines back in the 90s, Industry Week, Business Week, Forbes. Um, they were all re reporting on how uh, major corporations were getting smaller and downsizing. And it was really globalization that, that drove this, Corey. Um, um, Corporations found that uh, it was cheaper to outsource work overseas, whether it was to Mexico or to Asia or uh, developing countries around the world. Um, that's when we really first started to see um, the offshoring of manufacturing work and manufacturing work leaving the United States and the United States slowly becoming more of a service economy and less of a manufacturing economy. Well, environmental health and safety um, was no exception to other departments and other uh, um, parts of businesses. And uh, we saw a number of EHS departments, again, especially in large corporations, go through downsizing. And uh, we, we reported on this trend. I remember doing interviews with uh, safety professionals, EHS, uh, vice presidents of corporations um, and departments in some of these large corporations might have gone from several dozen safety and health 
professionals and industrial hygienists um, to a much smaller core of um, corporate level uh, safety and health professionals. The safety and health work was pushed down from the headquarters corporate level into the individual operating units and it was also pushed out to a lot of consultants. And it was in the late 1990s, I'd say, that we really saw the, the rise of safety and health uh, consulting, uh, especially in, in industrial hygiene. A lot of that uh, exposure monitoring work, which had been done by staff people, um, was now outsourced to consultants who came in on an as-needed basis or maybe for annual uh, plant audits. Uh, consultants would do this work instead of staff people. Um, so we reported on the business side of EHS in the late 1990s going into the new century. And then in um, the last 20 years, Corey, I'd say, um, the thing that probably or the development that has been most remarkable and that I've probably spent the most time reporting on are the technology. I, there were the really two technology booms. There was the first internet bubble back uh, in the very early 2000s. Um, and I can remember going to uh, the ASSP meeting and there would be any number of exhibitors um, for a couple of years, a growing number of technology exhibitors. And I remember there was one exhibitor called MySafetyDirector.com. And the idea was that these online technology services could take a lot of the compliance work and a lot of the um, kind of day-to-day -day, um, responsibilities, auditing work, um, off the shoulders of staff safety professionals and um, use it doing online services. Well, that, that first internet bubble burst after, I don't know, maybe four or five years. Um, but now we've seen in the last five years, I would say a second burst of technology um, coming to the safety and health field. Uh, this time, not with um, online services like MySafetyDirector.com, but as I'm sure your, your listeners are very well familiar with, um, now we're seeing a lot of safety and health wearables, both in personal protective equipment and um, health monitoring sensors that employees can wear. We're seeing a lot mobile applications that um, frontline employees can use using their smartphones to do um, their, own, their own near miss reporting, incident reporting, taking photographs of what they see as uh, dangerous, um, potentially dangerous conditions, um, even doing um, some auditing. And safety professionals themselves are using these same apps. Um, to do audits, to do near-miss reporting, um, to do various kinds of reporting functions. And this is creating, you know, the so-called big data pile of safety and health information, which can now be um, crunched down, sliced and diced in safety 
department headquarters, I'm sure a number of your listeners are doing this, um, using, using analytics, um, using predictive software. And to me, we've, we're just entering this new age of safety and health uh, as a profession, making use of this technology, making use of a lot of data that was not accessible before. And um, it's creating uh, benefits for the safety professions, for safety and health, for the safety and health of the workforce by um, being able to kind of predict, looking um, back patterns of incidents, patterns of near misses, patterns of reports of where the hazards are, um, and software is able to predict um, where the next accident may happen, what, what type of accident that may be, what kind of equipment it may involve, what kind of, uh, positions, uh, staff positions of workers may be most at risk. Um, to me, it's very interesting, Corey, and I think we're just getting into this new era of um, safety technology being a big tool in the safety toolkit. So that kind of takes you over uh, my journey, I guess you could say, brings us up to 2021. That's great. Definitely a definitely a lot of a lot of change. It's one of those cliches, you know, say the only thing consistent is change. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Right. Uh, I'm sorry, say it again. You're absolutely right, Corey. Okay. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Um, you know, it's interesting what you were talking about as far as OSHA and you know the that early period between um, you know, the end of uh, President Nixon into, you know, and through the Carter administration into the Reagan administration, how, you know, OSHA came about. And it, it's interesting to me, if you look at that in the context of of the current events, the deregulation question has always been there and yeah. it's very yeah. much there right now. And, you know, the, I've had this conversation three times in the last two weeks, actually, is what I always look at it in terms of regulation is I'm not a fan of arbitrary regulations, but if I can point to the intention of the regulation and why it exists, then it makes sense to me. And I'm able to, you know, quote unquote, sell that. So for example, like with respiratory protection, you know, we have the, the hazard analysis to figure out what the hazard is, what the necessary protection is and who's at risk for that. Then we have the medical evaluation to make sure that people can, wear the respirator safely without any adverse outcomes. Then we have the training and the education to make sure they know when to, when to get it, where to get it, how to don it, how to doff it, how to get a seal. Then we have the fit test to make sure that each model that they're using has a can get a proper seal on it. So a negative pressure, of course. So of course we can point to those things. Um, so if somebody talks about deregulating, then I always explain, you know, I, I would I would never be the one to to push on, you know, arbitrary, uh, quote unquote, you know, pointless regulations. But if we start to take apart the respiratory protection standard, then we don't know who's at risk. We don't know what they're at risk for, whether they can safely wear a respirator. We don't know they know how to wear a respirator and we don't know that they know they can get a seal on the respirator they're using. So each of those things makes sense to me. But um, I noticed that between 
between OSHA and EPA in the last six years, there have been you know dozens of dozens of things that have been you know either discussions or, or actual deregulation on. Um, do you think that's a do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, or do you think that's kind of a um, kind of a work in progress? What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, first, I, I just want to comment on, on something you said. I think that's a smart approach you take um, to explaining new regulations or any regulation and um, selling the regulation um, to both workers and to management. You focus on the intention of the regulation. Um, and I think that's a, that's a good summary way of explaining why this regulation has been issued instead of kind of getting lost in the weeds of all the technical details and trying to explain right off the bat to workers or to senior leaders um, all the requirements. I think if you step back and do as you do and look at the intention of the reg, um, I think that, that's smart, Corey. Um, in terms of um, the current kind of deregulatory environment, which, yeah, goes back maybe a half dozen years or so. Um, um, I would say it's, yeah, one, it's a work in progress. And two, Corey, from my perspective, um, there's been a lot more talk than really action about deregulation. I can't think of an OSHA standard anyway that has been withdrawn. Um, they're still on the books. Now, OSHA enforcement um, kind of go, the numbers, the number of inspections conducted can swing back and forth, whether it's a Republican administration in the White House or controlling Congress or a Democratic administration in the White House or controlling Congress. Uh, but a couple of weeks ago, I did a podcast with uh, Ed Folk, who was the OSHA administrator in George W. Bush's um, uh, tenure. And Ed made the point that his inspection, annual inspection numbers were really, uh, you know, 40,000, 35,000, something like that for federal OSHA. And those numbers were really quite similar to the number of inspections that OSHA was conducting under um, uh, Democratic administrations. Um, uh, when you look at the standard setting, um, it slowed down, I think, dramatically um, compared to the last century, the 1970s, 1980s. Um, going into the 1990s with hazard communication, if you look at the standards that OSHA has set uh, in the last five years, in the last 10 years, uh, yes, there's been a couple of major standards, the silica standard, um, the walking, working surfaces standard, um, but many um, safety and health people uh, that I, report that I interview and report on, Corey, 
whether they are based in Washington or around the country, um, but they've been so-called OSHA watchers for years, if not decades. And there's kind of a consensus when I talk to these experts that the OSHA standard setting system is just broke. Um, it takes years to set an OSHA standard now. Um, uh, I think the silica standard and the walking working surfaces standard, both which were issued at the end of the uh, Barack Obama administration and Dr. David Michaels was heading OSHA at the time. Those two standards probably took more than 10 years from the time that they were initially um, proposed and debated and you had public comment periods and then OSHA would revise the proposal. Um, the agency and EPA as well just have to um, jump through so many um, hoops and hurdles um, to get to the point to issue a final standard that can withstand legal challenges because in our legal age today, chances are when EPA or OSHA or other regulatory agencies issue a standard, somebody is going to challenge it in court. So another reason for the delay and the years that it takes to, to put out OSHA standards is that within OSHA um, and within the Department of Labor, a lot of time is spent in meetings going over these standards before they're issued to try to make sure that they can um, stand up to legal challenges. Um, so uh, there's also a lot of talk um, when I do interviews and report on, okay, now, we have the Biden administration. We have a new OSHA chief coming in, Doug Parker, who uh, most recently uh, has been the head of California OSHA, Cal OSHA. Uh, so the, the story has been, okay, what's going to happen at OSHA now under the Biden administration with this new OSHA chief in the next couple of years? And one of the things that I keep hearing in my interviews with the experts is, boy, they got to fix the broken standard. I don't know, it's not going to be an easy process, but the standard setting system is broken. And they really need um, to bring in all the stakeholders. Um, okay, this is a democratic administration. Um, Doug Parker is, is a Democrat from California, but in order to, to fix standard setting and if you want to streamline it, make it easier to get out standards in the future, um, you really need to have brainstorming sessions with all the OSHA stakeholders, be it business groups, the Chamber of Commerce, um, the Fortune 500 companies, uh, different business trade associations, um, the professional societies like ASSP and the National Safety Council and the Industrial Hygiene Association, and then the unions. And um, OSHA really uh, is in the position to calling all these people together um, for brainstorming sessions to try to figure out, how can, okay, how can we fix standard setting 
so that um, when new hazards emerge, OSHA can address them or EPA can address them more quickly than what they've been able to do over the last, geez, 20 or 30 years or so. Um, so that's where I see uh, regulatory reform right now, um, Corey. The other thing I would say in doing uh, reporting on, okay, we got a new OSHA administration, what's gonna be happening in the next couple of years. Um, the other consensus that I hear from the, again, so-called OSHA watchers, uh, people who have worked in the agency in the past or people who have been close to the agency for a number of years, they say, um, okay, standards aside, you will see more enforcement activity. You will see more inspectors. President Biden has, has vowed to uh, give OSHA a bigger budget. And in fact, um, OSHA is in line for a 12% budget increase in fiscal year um, 2022 that the president has proposed. It's been a long, long time since OSHA has seen a 12% one-year budget increase if Congress approves that. And a lot of that budget money will go to hiring more inspectors because the OSHA inspection force has gotten smaller and has shrunk in size in the last 15 to 20 years, um, a lot of it due to retirements and then just vacancies that um, haven't been filled. So you will see, I think, a ramp up on the enforcement side of OSHA in the next couple of years, more inspectors being hired, um, more inspections being done, not a great number uh, of increased inspections, but you will see strong enforcement. You will see big penalties um, in, in major uh, enforcement cases. And you'll also see OSHA go back to the practice of um, issuing press releases to uh, the national media, to um, the safety trade press like uh, Industrial Safety and Hygiene News Magazine, where they headline um, some of these six-figure penalties, even going into millions of dollars of proposed penalties um, for really serious, egregious violations. That uh, practice, which critics have called the uh, blame and shame game that OSHA plays, that was stopped uh, in the Trump administration. Um, businesses don't like that. Um, Republicans basically don't like that, but it's already been revived in the Biden administration, even before Doug Parker, the new administrator, officially takes over. If you go to the OSHA website in their newsroom, you will see <clears throat> at this point, um, the new administration's only been there since January, but in the newsroom, you'll probably see 30 or 40 um, news stories on penalty cases um, involving fairly big fines, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, so the enforcement side of OSHA already um, has been ramped up. But that in a nutshell, go ahead. I should just gonna say that in a nutshell is, is where I see OSHA right now and regulatory reform right now. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I, there's two things that, that I was thinking about as you were as you were discussing that the the first one is kind of the big picture as far as you know when I think about OSHA and and like I said with regulations and the intention behind the regulations you know the and I may I may get on the I may get on the um, <laughs> I may get on the bad list for saying this but that's nothing new but um, you know with 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 regulations it it almost always falls under you know safe conditions so we're talking about do organizations have the the right plans do they have the right equipment do they have the right training records you know but what we also know is that the majority of the incidents you know tend to stem from the work practices so one of, one of the things i'm always i always kind of reiterate over and over again is that even if we're completely compliant with everything, you know, with OSHA, Joint Commission, you know, all the different agencies, whether whether they're um, regulatory or voluntary, we can be completely compliant with all that. But that just means we have the right prerequisites. Um, but then what really prevents those incidents in real time is going to be the work practices and, and the, the adherence to them, whether it be following the SOP or using the PBE or whatnot. Um, so. That, that'd be the first part of that is how, how does how do you think OSHA um, whether they increase or or stay the same or even decrease their enforcement programs do you right. think that, that has any real impact on on incidents um, I think over the decades Corey it's had OSHA has had a positive well, it's had a positive impact influence on reducing both uh, minor incidents and um, fatalities. If you go back 50 years and you look at what the uh, the number of fatalities, I don't know what the number was back in 1970, but it's been greatly reduced. The number of overall injuries that the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports on every year has been greatly reduced. That said. Um, the fatality, the number of fatalities has plateaued um, over the last five or 10 years. Um, and every year when the Bureau of Labor Statistics issues its report on the number of workplace fatalities, the number um, has remained at about 4,500. And this gets us into the subject of serious injuries and fatalities. And I'm sure your listeners are well familiar with SIFs, um, serious injury and fatalities. And I don't think OSHA has done a good job of addressing serious injury and fatality prevention. In fact, it was just brought to my attention not a week ago in an interview that if you go on the OSHA website, and you go to their A to Z index, which is really a fabulous resource um, with probably hundreds of safety and health topics, you will not find in the A to Z index anything on serious injuries and fatalities. OSHA doesn't talk about it. Now, uh, Dr. David Michaels, when he was head of OSHA, he did talk about serious injuries and fatalities. OSHA, of course, has no standard um, 
on how to prevent serious injuries and fatalities. And a lot of um, companies uh, with really um, what I would say are world-class safety and health programs with very low overall incident rates are still haunted, Corey, by um, uh, too many serious injuries and, and really too many fatalities. One fatality is too many. And these companies with world-class programs are frustrated by the challenge of, um, okay, we have minor incidents under control, but um, man, we are having a stubborn time um, bringing down our serious injuries and fatalities. And this is something I think where OSHA could come in and uh, maybe hold a, a summit, um, a national summit on serious injuries and fatalities, and try to get the best um, uh, leadership thinking in safety and health with groups like ASSP, um, the Safety Council. There are things that OSHA could be doing aside from setting standards or enforcing um, to try to bring about some best practices on reducing um, what I think is, is one of the big problems today in safety and health. How do you prevent the worst accidents, um, the serious injuries and fatalities? I kind of think OSHA is missing the boat there. That's interesting. You know, it it's a, it's definitely an ongoing conversation. You know, when we talk about things like high reliability theory and, you know, the normal accident theory and how those things relate to things like those serious incidents and fatalities. Um, really interesting stuff there. And the other part of that I was thinking about is when we talk about OSHA, you know, in the context of the regulations and, and developing safe working conditions and and I do agree that, you know, the more safe working conditions, that's going to promulgate the safe work practices. Because, of course, you know, people can't, going back to the respiratory protection example, you know, people can't use a respirator in real time if they don't have a respirator program. So it sets all that up for success. Um, I know that there's been a big, you know, because we're the healthcare practice specialty, of course, there, there's been a lot of a lot of targeted enforcement around healthcare in the yes, last 10 yes. years. Uh, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Do you um, as far as I, I, I think it's important. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't mean to interrupt your question, but I I I think it's um, you know you guys in healthcare are on the front lines. I mean we've seen this in the last 14, 15 months with the pandemic, um, and you know even prior to COVID-19, um, infectious diseases um, and, and other health hazards um, have been a major issue for you folks in the healthcare sector. And um, uh, I talked earlier about um, the United States not really being the manufacturing power that it used to be, but it certainly is a power when it comes to uh, medicine, medical treatment, and the healthcare section. And um, I think one of the things um, to look out for, Corey, in talking to some people um, 
who follow OSHA, and um, it's even been in the press and just in the last couple of weeks or a month, um, you know, there was talk about um, OSHA issuing an emergency temporary standard on COVID-19, um, particularly to protect frontline healthcare workers. Well, that emergency temporary standard um, has not seen the light of day. Uh, it was supposed to come out months ago, um, and it, it may never come out at this point as the um, case rate, um, as you well know in healthcare, as the number of cases, as the number of COVID cases continue to go down and the number of vaccinations continue to go up, the question has been asked more and more, is this really an, an emergency situation now that warrants an OSHA emergency temporary standard? And what may happen, Corey, is that OSHA does not issue an emergency temporary standard covering COVID-19. Instead, OSHA might, and I think the chances are fairly good talking to some people um, in OSHA leadership uh, at the beginning of this new administration, it's already on their minds to propose a uh, infectious disease standard. OSHA does not have infectious diseases standard. Yes, it has a bloodborne pathogen standard, but this infectious diseases standard would be much broader and it would be aimed primarily again at, at protecting healthcare workers and frontline workers. And I would not be surprised uh, in the next year to 18 months, if we don't see OSHA come out with a proposal anyway for an infectious diseases rule. Um, and again, the primary um, target of that, um, of course, would be the healthcare sector. And um, there's a number of people who think that's that's really the course that OSHA should uh, pursue, a broader infectious diseases standard instead of really focusing on COVID-19. So we'll see what happens, but that's definitely a possibility. Oh, I, I totally agree with that. You know, as far as the infectious disease exposures, one of the biggest things that I've been discussing with, you know, all of our leaders and I have been discussing for years is that when we talk about things like COVID-19 or in the past, you know, we had Ebola in 2014 and before that we had H1N1 and, you know, we had avian right. flu, swine flu and you know, all these different variants, West Nile virus, you know, the, and all of that, a lot of times, a lot of the media around that, they create this monolithic threat, you know, it's here's COVID-19 or here's Ebola right. or whatnot. But, but the reality is that those are all different variants of a airborne transmitted right. disease or a bloodborne yeah. pathogen, body fluid transmitted disease, you right. know, so if we're able to develop those, those programs and protocols, it doesn't matter what the disease is. It just matters that we know how to identify it. We have the programs and then we're able to protect against it in real time. So I, th I think that'd be great. Um, you know, the thing about infectious diseases, of course, it's a biological hazard. So it falls under seaburn. So when we're talking about that, you know, you're kind of in that middle of a triangle between what goes on with hazmat response with the contamination control zones. Right. And then you've got your 
you know, your um, healthcare type response, which is your isolation rooms and your source control and your respiratory protection and your PPE. And then you've got your, you know, macro level kind of the same frame of mind you have with weapons of mass destruction, you know, seaburn agents where you're talking about uh, hazard distances and how these things proliferate through through a population and whatnot. So if people are able to get into that and understand how that works, then we have a much better chance of catching the next major virus or the next major threat very early on and just really removing the, you know, removing the uh, propensity for it to spread like it did this time. Uh, so I think that that's a good thing. And so with all that, so with all that in mind, excellent insight. Uh, so we talked about the history of all these things with, with OSHA and how everything transpired in the last 40 years. We talked about uh, 50 years. Um, we talked about the, the current, the current uh, site picture and situation report. We talked about the way things are transpiring with technology. That's all, all fantastic stuff. So if we look at all those things now, let's say that you were talking to someone that's just coming out of, um, if they're in college and they're studying safety management or engineering or whatnot, or, or somebody that's coming out of the military or someone that's even coming out of high school and trying to figure this all out, what, what would you tell them if they asked you how to, how to go into this? Um, a couple of thoughts. Uh, I think they're entering the field at a good time. Um, coming out of the pandemic, uh, which of course has been a horrible experience over the last year and a half. Um, but I think uh, there, there, there have, there, there's going to be some positives that come out of this horrible experience. And I think one of them um, that um, somebody coming into the field should be aware of and should be looking at is um, there's going, I, I think, Corey, there's going to be more emphasis, whether it's OSHA, whether it's regulators, or whether it's company management, uh, there's going to be more emphasis on health. You know, it's always been safety and health with safety coming first. And over my career of reporting, I've done a lot more reporting, a lot more interviewing about safety topics than health topics. I think the pandemic has kind of changed that dynamic. And I think going forward, businesses now are much more aware after the last 18, after the last 15 to 18 months, much more aware of how important it is to keep their employees healthy. And uh, so we're hearing a lot more talk um, and I'm reading a lot more articles and I'm doing interviews where I'm talking to people about health issues, um, talking about mental health, which I think is a great thing. Um, I think um, mental health in the workplace has suffered from a stigma and employees have not wanted to talk about it. Management has not wanted to address mental health issues. That's changing now um, because there's been a lot of mental health issues that have that have risen um, because of the pandemic. A lot of anxiety, a lot of working in isolation. Um, so I think companies are. Uh, I know this for a fact. Um, that companies, more companies, are starting um, 
up well-being programs. There's, there's wellness programs have been around for decades, but I think companies are taking a new look at their wellness programs. They're taking a new look at uh, what NIOSH calls um, total worker health, which is health on and off the job and how a worker's um, nutrition and lifestyle habits off the job can affect um, their health and well-being on the job. And um, so I think companies um, are, are starting to take a bigger picture look at health issues. And so if I was coming into the field now, coming out of college, I would make sure um, that I have a pretty good understanding of the health issues and what top management of companies that I may be hired into um, are doing on the health front. Um, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy to see over the years what they've been doing on the safety front, but I think a lot of companies are launching new initiatives on the health front, and I, I would be, I'd be, I'd be aware of that. Um, one other point, Corey, I, I think if you're coming into the field now, you should also have an understanding of this new acronym. You, you've probably talked about it with um, some of your um, peers, ESG environment, social governance. Um, companies, especially large companies, Fortune 500 companies, multinational companies, um, are now being graded by Wall Street, by the investment community, by shareholders, and also by consumers of products on what is, what is a company's performance when it comes to their environmental record? What is their performance when it comes to their social issues record? And safety and health is a social issue, Corey. And um, what are they doing on the governance front? How ethical is the company? How transparent is the company in disclosing and reporting on um, any problems that it's having. Um, there's a much stronger demand for companies to be open, um, either with their environmental um, issues, with their safety issues, with their health issues, with other um, organizational issues. And um, there are scoring systems now um, that different investment um, firms use to decide what company stocks they're going to buy. And they look at these scoreboards, these ESG scoreboards, to see which companies score high in their environmental performance, in their social responsibility performance, in their government performance. And um, a lot of um, stockholders want to, to spend their, their investment money on companies that are doing the right thing. This, this is kind of a new trend. This was not something that we saw going back in the 1990s or the 1980s. Uh, yeah, sustainability has been talked about. 
product stewardship, being a good corporate citizen has been talked about for decades, but you didn't have um, these rating systems that have been developed by investment firms to guide um, people buying stocks on, okay, if you wanna buy green stocks, if you wanna buy stocks in companies that are doing right by the environment, that are doing right by their employees and safety and health, um, here's a rating system and a scorecard that you can look at to see who's doing well and who's not doing so well. And so I think if you're coming into the field, this is going, this is uh, ESG um, and the rating system and the performance evaluation that companies are going to be going through in terms of the environment and safety and health performance um, is only going to grow in the future. So if you're coming into the field, I think it's important to understand whatever company you're hiring into, um, understand where they're at with um, ESG, where they're at with their environmental reporting, with their social safety and health reporting, look at their annual sustainability reports, look at their annual reports, and companies are including more and more information about um, their environmental metrics, their safety and health metrics, um, getting away from lagging indicators and putting more work into uh, leading indicators uh, for safety and health performance, for environmental performance. So I think if you're coming into the field, it's, it's wise to know um, what companies that you're looking at um, hiring into uh, what's their performance? And it's 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 not too hard to find out now. Like I said, companies are more transparent, um, especially the major companies. Um, you can find this information in their annual reports. You can find it on their website. You can find it online. Um, you can find it in their sustainability reports. It's probably more information than there's ever been on uh, corporate environmental safety and health. Um, performance. So if I was coming in to the field, I'd be paying attention and I'd be getting my hands on that information. Um, and it's really going to help guide you as to who's on the leading edge when it comes to best practices and who uh, is kind of behind the curve. So there are two thoughts, Corey, that I have about coming into the field right now. Oh, that's yeah, outstanding. I I totally agree with that, you know. And um, one of the one of the perspectives I've always had, especially this has been throughout the years, but it really it really kind of came to a came to a kind of critical point in the last year with the with the pandemic, the last eighteen months in particular, is that like you said, you know, with organizations. It's, it's important to know what, what we're working with in terms of their their willingness to either, you know, it goes back to their risk management, you know, whether you're talking about risk acceptance, risk avoidance, risk control, risk transfer. So in the case of the pandemic, it became just boldly obvious what organizations' perspectives were because they were making decisions that were not only very, very overt and very public facing, but 
those decisions were not only going to affect their operations, but they were going to affect the public and they were going to affect the public that interacts with their employees as well. So it, their decision is going to affect multiple layers and tiers of people. So if that organization were to say, you know, we were willing to accept this risk, you know, we don't think this virus is something to worry about. Right. So we're not right. going to do we're not going to do face covers. We're not going to do social distancing. We're just going to continue operating as normal. Of course, that's their that's their prerogative, you know, as long as they're within legal boundaries. But that organization also has to understand that they're making that decision for their for their employees. So if they if they if they're not willing to get up on a on a stage and tell every employee and all their shareholders, you know, our risk management posture is that we don't believe this virus is a threat. We are not going to do anything to control it. And therefore, if you work here, you're going to be at risk. And those employees then have the ability to determine, OK, is that something that I want to be part of? Or you have an organization on the flip side that may say our risk management posture is we believe this virus to be a dire threat. And therefore, we are going to either a do, you know, if possible, we're going to do remote work or if not possible, then we're going to do physical separation and we're going to do barriers and we're going to do face covers and source control and social distancing. And, you know, so our risk management is we're going to control this thing, you know, as much as possible. And in that case, they, you know, they'll tell their employees, well, you're required to now you're, you have to participate in these things. You have to wear a face cover. You have to do social distancing, you know. Um, so it, it's very important, like you said, for the transparency to be there so that the organization makes their decision on their risk management and their hazard control uh, protocols, then they, the employees have an obligation now to either know that and choose whether they want to participate or if they are going to participate, then of course they have to follow those protocols as well. Um, so knowing that, um, that's just the front line of all the hazard control issues. But then of course, like you said, it gets into the, uh, you know, the environmental and, and the corporate citizenship and the ethics. And the thing I always, whenever I talk to somebody that's kind of either coming into the field or they, or they just want to talk about, you know, talk shop or whatnot, I always say, it's important to know these things because as a safety professional, at some point, it's a, it's a very real possibility that you'll end up in a deposition having to explain these things. So if, if you have a real big ethical dilemma going on, you know, it may not be the kind of thing where it's happening up in the ivory tower. You may have to answer for it at some point. So um, going back to your point, you know, it's important to know these things and, and make informed decisions and, um, like you said, you know, those the information is more available now than it used to be. So that's always a good thing. Um, I know every now and then I get an email where somebody somebody feels it necessary to send me a headline from an organization that I used to work for. You know, and they'll say, oh, the, here's this court case or here's this here's this ruling or whatnot. And I go, well, you know, I, I don't work there anymore uh, for a, whatever reason. But uh, OK, thank you for keeping me up to speed, you know. Um, yeah, so yeah. it's interesting. Well, I think you bring up a, you bring up one, a good point about uh, risk and um, people entering the field. Um, I think they're learning this in school, um, but certainly when they enter the workforce, um, what you've just described. Um, I've had a number of interviews over the last just couple of years where people, safety and health experts, um, tell me, Dave, it's all about risk now. 
It's all about risk. Risk-based thinking is the term that's used. And as you described, Corey, um, probably more than ever, companies are making decisions based on risk, just as you described. And I think it's important if you're coming into the field to understand how it's all about risk now, risk-based thinking and decisions based on risk. And like you say, you can go either way. Good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's very interesting. I've, I've written a lot of things about this where in the past I've had, you know, for example, a, a good example of a OSHA regulation would be the, the OSHA reference for eyewash stations. You know, it references the ANSI standard in there. And what it, you know, what it states is if you have a corrosive chemical, then you have to have an eyewash station within um, 10 seconds or 55 feet unobstructed, you know, tepid water, all, all these different factors. And so in the past, I've had people that um, they'll, they'll come to me and they'll say, well, we don't we don't comply with that. And I said, well, you know, it's it's in the regulation. So whether you know, you can you can make your decision, but I'm informing you that or I'm advising you that the consequence may be that you get a you know, you get a citation and maybe a fine or whatnot. And so um, what what they'll say is, well, if that happens, then we'll explain to the to the um, officer or to the inspector that we did a risk assessment and we determined that it was a low risk of exposure to that chemical. And so we did not we did not put the resources into the eyewash station um, or the eyewash you know, resource. And I said, I, I understand your thinking. I really do. I said, I'm sympathetic. I said, but the reality is that regardless of what your risk assessment says, it's in the federal law. So if they come in, they're gonna—they're not gonna care if it's a low risk of a corrosive chemical splashing in your eye. The regulation states if you have a corrosive chemical, you have to have the eyewash station within 10 seconds or 55 feet. So that's always the—you know—the first parameter there. So of course, once we have all those regulations covered, you know, and then of course the general duty clause also applies there, so right. it kind of right. opens up that orbit even more. But yeah. Um, yeah. You know, once those regs are covered, you know, then from that point there are things like. Like right now, there's not a, like you said, there's not an infectious disease exposure prevention standard. Uh, there's not an ergonomic standard. You know, there's not workplace violence. So um, right. those things right. can be, you know, they are, they can be subject to risk, risk perception. Uh, I actually just did a piece that's, uh, it's in ISHN right now um, about subjective risk assessments and how those can, you know, if you have a, an ethical dilemma or if you have somebody that just in their mind, you know, if you have an executive or, or a board of directors or whatnot in their mind, they say, well, it's not, it doesn't seem like a big risk to me. So we're not going to put a control in place. So in effect, they're making that decision for everybody else. You know, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting how that kind of transpires. <clears throat> but uh, well, heck, um, we, we sure appreciate your time today. I don't, I don't want to keep you on here all day. Um, no, I, just, no, can I say one more thing, Corey? Please, please do. Okay. Listening to you talk just now um, brings to mind, uh, I guess, another thing, maybe the fourth thing that we brought up that people entering the field should uh, be thinking about and building uh, skills for, and that is um, people skills. The way you described addressing um, 
the person who says, um, you know, we did a risk assessment and we're not, you know, we feel that the risk is so low of the need for an eyewash station that we're not putting it in. And the way you responded was very empathetic. And you said, I'm sympathetic to your thinking. And so you showed you understand. You didn't take the old command and control approach and just said, well, OSHA says you got to do it. You got to do it. No, you're listening to the person. You're using your people skills. Um, and I know you, Corey. We've known each other for, for a number of years. And you have good people skills. And time and again, I do interviews um, asking um, veteran safety professionals, um, what's important what skills um should young professionals be developing and time and again it come i hear um interview subjects say people skills you know you come out of college you have the technical skills um you can decipher the regulations you can explain the regulations but what is often an on-the-job learning experience are those people skills and good listening skills and uh, asking questions and being empathetic as as you just um, showed in, in that hypothetical situation that you described. And I think those people skills um, are a, a much stronger way to influence um, uh, what you wanna see happen in terms of safety and health in your workplace by being empathetic and working with people and listening to what people have to say, being a little patient with people instead of the old uh, safety police uh, approach, which is these are the rules, you just gotta follow the rules, end of discussion. Now, um, in 2021, um, the way the workforce is, the way people are now who are in the workforce, um, they respond much better to people like you in leadership positions who have conversations um, that really kind of showcase their people skills and their ability to relate to people and to listen to people and to talk reasonably to people. That always hasn't been, the, as you all know, Corey, that always hasn't been the case in safety when we go back and talk about safety 50 years ago when OSHA was first starting, it was much more of a policing function. It was much more of a rules enforcement, this is just what you gotta do um, kind of mindset. Uh, here in 2021, um, it's uh, not that cut and dry. People don't respond um, to that kind of command and control approach. They respond to uh, the way that you described um, your interaction in that hypothetical situation you described. So I just wanted to throw that in there because I, I do think people's skills are important. Oh yeah, thank you. That's that's definitely important. To, it's interesting how you put that. You know, one of the things when when I've had those kind of conversations with people, um, I always explain it in the context of. You know, if you're having that conversation with with somebody, especially if they're, you know, several rungs up on the on the ladder, then it can very easily become the kind of thing where, you know, you're 
you're you're giving input or you're giving advice as far as you know risk level and and hazard control and you know they have the ability to um to decide or or negate or whatnot right. so depending on how you present those options and depending on how you, how you relay that information you know that may be the difference between number one is whether they implement a, a hazard control or a safety protocol and number two it may be the difference of whether or not you uh, you know quote unquote you know the cliche you know whether you live to fight another day you know because yep. <laughs> it's one thing if, if you go in there and you lay down a hard line you know you may not only not get the safety improvement that you're seeking but you may also uh, you know, you may may lose credibility, you may lose visibility, or, or if you if you're harsh enough, you may get fired. You know, and in that case, you're not you're not helping anybody. So sometimes you may lose a little ground on a certain issue or a certain hazard, um, but you may continue to to be relevant. Uh, but if you lose that relevancy, you know, then there's going to be a lot more hazards in the future that are going to go uncontrolled because you're not going to be there to to speak to it anymore. Um, so yeah, you're definitely right. Those people can... Absolutely, completely agree with you. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those things. You know, pride is a whole. Of course, that's a whole different conversation. But yeah, pride can be <laughs> pride can be dangerous. Yep. <laughs> um, right, you are. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, I've had a lot of those moments, and I've been I've been doing this for about just over 17 years now. And there's a lot of times I can think back and, you know, you have those cringe moments where you go, Oh, I, I did that. Or I said that it's, Oh man, I would never do that now. But uh, yeah, there's been times, you know, I, um, I, I put down a hard line on some things and I went, well, you know, I, had I not done, had I handled that differently, I probably could have been more effective, you know, and thankfully I've been able to, to learn from that. Well, like you say, I think it's important to have that idea in your head. Um, you need to fight another day. You know, there's, 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 in safety and health, there's always going to be issues that come up. There's always going to be conflicts or, or uh, battles, if you want to call them that. Maybe that's too strong of a word, but like you say, um, you want to be able to fight for another day. And so sometimes you got to back off a little bit. Um, to maintain your credibility, not off too hard line, and that's going to, like you say, help your relevance down the road. Good point. Yeah, it's all. Um, it it, you know, unfortunately, nothing is nothing is cut and dry. You know, nothing is. There's a lot of gray area out there. So you're you're definitely right. How you handle those things is it's important. <clears throat> Yeah, but uh, but cool. A heck of a conversation. We should, we should appreciate it. Yeah, um, I enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it, Corey. I always enjoy talking to you. Yeah, um, it's great talking with you. You've been great certainly. writing for ISHN over the years. Thank you. Oh, thank y'all. I appreciate you printing it. Um, you know, I, I'm always thankful whenever you know anybody is willing to to work with me on on whether it's writing or or speaking or presentations or whatnot, you know, it, 
um, I, I never never take those things for granted. You know, it's a. Yeah. I always think it's a, it it it's it's always a big a big deal when somebody's willing to to take something I wrote or, or said. <clears throat> but uh, is there anything else you'd like to like to put out for our listeners today before we before we break off? Uh, just one more thing, Corey. You know, you were talking about um, the gray areas, and yes, mm-hmm. there, there are so many gray areas. Once you get into the working world, I mean, there's there's so many gray areas in life, and, you know, anyway, but um, when you get into the working world, this is not something that you can, I don't think you can be uh, trained or schooled in learning how to deal with these gray areas that come up. And that's so I, I guess just another thought I have for um, young people coming into the field is. Um, if you can, find a mentor, find a veteran, somebody who has had experience dealing with the gray areas and can talk to you about um, how to deal with the gray areas, like you say, when to back off, when you do maybe have to be more assertive, how you do talk to um, senior leaders a couple levels up, how you do talk to employees who have been on the job for 40 years and, and, and you're coming in out of school. Um, there, there, there's, you know, many ways you can handle those kind of conversations and those kind of situations. And if you have a, a some type of advisor or, or somebody that you build a relationship with, that you network with, that you find either through an ASSP specialty group like yours in healthcare or a local ASSP chapter, or maybe you go to a national meeting and you you strike up uh, a friendship. There's many ways of meeting um, mentors, coaches, uh, advisors, counselors, call them what you will, people who can help you out. And I think, um, that just comes to mind when you bring up the reality of <laughs> uh, the gray areas that we all deal with in the work world. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that, and I, I do agree with that. Also, you know, that's been a, a that's been a big thing for me over the years uh, personally. Is you know when I, I I had spoken to you know like-minded people at. Uh, the local ASSP sections or chapters or and then I got involved with a- AOHP which has been great um with a- AOHP they were the they were the um the first that um had, had published some of my work when I I didn't even think it was feasible you know and uh and then, then, I, then I, I'd spoken to you through um ISHN at the time and you know just, they, they've always been great and um so it's, it's always been good to meet people that are very knowledgeable and experienced, you know, so that I can I can use that as a um, as a benchmark as to, you know, whether I'm whether what I'm saying is is crazy or you know irrational or whatnot. <laughs> yeah, but, I think uh, it's the way we grow, Corey. I think it's the way we grow as professionals, whatever our field is. Definitely. And like you said, going back to the people skills, you know, it's being willing to acknowledge that and, you know, not not having that kind of know it all mentality. And because that'll 
you know, of course, that's a different conversation also, but that that can, um, aside from speaking to people higher on the org chart, you know, when you're speaking to people in the organization that are on, on the teams in the field or whatnot, you know, if you if you come in there like a bull in a china shop and, you know, you know, what's wrong with you? Don't you know the safety protocol? And don't you understand? They go, well, no, I never heard that before, you know, and, and now that you're insulting me, you know, yeah. <laughs> now they're, they're not very inclined to listen. Um, so that's always important. Also, I always try to remind myself that, you know, very, very few people know and not, not, not as if they, they can't learn it or they don't have the capacity. They just are busy doing their job. Right. So of course they're not going to learn all the, all the safety information that a safety professional knows they're, they're not expected to, and they don't take the time to do it because they're doing their job, which we don't know their job either. You know, right. Yep. Yeah. Important stuff, but um, great perspective. We sure appreciate that. Um, so we will go ahead and wrap it up today, but um, yeah. I always in the open invite. If, if you're interested in the future, you know, we'd love to have you back on. And then we also do a lot of panels. Anytime. This has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, you're a good conversationalist. You're a good podcast. Oh, thank you. I, it's actually by default. <laughs> you know, I, we had we had talked about doing the podcast, and uh, um, yeah, I'm not really sure how I ended up the host, to be honest. But um, I, I appreciate ASSP, you know, putting it out for us and. Um, everybody that, that partners with us on it for sure so we can we can get more information out to people and you know keep um keep trying to benefit the the profession and the in the field of course got it cool cool well heck um i'll be in touch and we, we can talk about setting up another another panel or another episode later but um for today we, we sure appreciate it um yeah, sure. so for, you think there's a number of uh things you brought up that are conversations for another day or talks for another day. So yeah, let's take it up another time. Sure. Love to. Yes, yeah, sir. Yeah, there's definitely definitely plenty of material there. Um all right. Well, we had a great conversation with, with Dave Johnson. We sure appreciate his time. So as always with AOHP, you know, please feel free to get in touch on our LinkedIn page or through the AOHP website, or through the listserv. We've got a lot of great information coming up. We've got our national conference in September in San Diego. And otherwise, each of the chapters and each of the regions are always up to something, whether it's conference calls or whether it's educational sessions and different resources coming out. So please keep in touch with that. And as always, if you have anything you'd like to, you'd like to present, you'd like to write about, you'd like to discuss, let us know. And we're always happy to do that. If there's anything you're looking for, such as any topics or any resources, we'll be happy to get that for you. Otherwise, we appreciate everybody being here today, and we'll talk to you real soon. Have a great day.